Well, good morning. My name is Simon. How about we talk to God before we get into his word? Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you that your word is a word that brings life to the dead through Jesus. Please help us to be committed to faithfully sharing it until our last day or Jesus' return. Amen. Well, if you haven't been with us here at 8.45 recently, uh, we've been working through the book of Jude. Now, this book is a letter to Jesus' followers, which explains why we need to contend for the gospel, why we need to persevere in sharing the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection, even when it's in the face of opposition. Now, last week, Andrew helped us to understand what this opposition to the gospel looks like and how significant a threat it can pose to God's people. It was a big reality check, wasn't it? It's easy for us Anglicans here in Sydney, in Gladesville, uh, to think that opposition was just a problem for the early church. Uh, It's not something we need to worry about that much, that false teachers, well, they aren't going to come among us. Uh, But today we're going to see a little differently. Uh, Today we're going to look at verses 17 to 25 of Jude and think through what our response to opposition actually should be. Uh, We're going to ask, what does contending for the gospel look like in your life and in my life? I mean, in fact, to kickstart our contending, I would love it if you could keep your Bibles open and follow along with me throughout. Uh, This means that you can verify that what I'm saying comes from Scripture, and you can hold me accountable to that. Um, It's a way that I'd encourage you to be contending for the gospel, for the truth of the gospel, every single time you hear someone speak from Scripture. Uh, There's also an outline of the talk in the bulletin, Uh, and if a transcript of what I'm saying would be helpful for you, then you can find that up at the back. Now, friends, the reason why I'm so keen for you to be an active participant in this sermon by comparing what I say to Scripture is because the first half of Jude's letter gives us an image of the terrible damage that can occur if we're tricked into following a counterfeit gospel, following false teachings and false teachers. We need to remember that a counterfeit gospel, well, a counterfeit gospel does not save. It's a lie masquerading as truth. It's not the genuine article. You know, it's one thing to realize that you've been tricked into buying a counterfeit product, like this Nintendo Poly Station that's up on the screen, not the genuine article. Um, Or perhaps you go down to the shops and you end up with a tuna rather than a Puma shirt. You know, we've all seen knockoffs like this. You have that annoying feeling that you've just blown some money on something that isn't the genuine article. But imagine living your whole life, following a god or someone or something, giving money, time, sweat, tears, literally years of your life, only to face the real God on that last day and realize that you'd bought a lie, that you were badly, badly wrong. Imagine your sense of panic then, certainly more than picking up a Nintendo PlayStation. False teaching has huge stakes. Just think how Jude's initial readers might have responded to his warning about false teachers coming among them. Maybe they started to get nervous. They started to get worried. They started looking over their shoulders, around the room, speculating as to who in their midst might be a false teacher. A sense of panic rising in their chest. That's a pretty normal reaction, isn't it? But you know what? In the face of false teaching... Jude verses 17 to 25 
um, actually says that we shouldn't panic. That panicking is the wrong response to false teaching. In fact, if verses 17 to 25 of Jude were a book, it might well have don't panic in large friendly letters on the cover, a little bit like the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Um, instead of panicking, Jude tells us to do three things, which are there in your outline. First, we need to remember so that we're aware of false teachers. Second, we need to respond by loving God and others in response to false teachers. And thirdly, most importantly, we need to know, we need to be certain as a community here at Gladesville that we have a powerful and loving God who is totally in control. Now, with that structure in mind, let's dive into the passage. Now, Jude verses 17 to 19 is a summary of Jude's warning in verses 3 to 16 that we looked at last week. This summary implores us not to panic in the face of opposition, but instead to remember. Uh, verse 17 reads, Dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. Now, this instruction to remember got me thinking a little bit about uh, how concerned we are as a society about remembering. We have whole days dedicated to remembering throughout the year. Um, in fact, Remembrance Day, it's even in the name, is coming up in a few weeks. Uh, on the 11th of the 11th, we're going to pause together and remember past conflicts with a view to never repeating them. Uh, similarly, Anzac Day. On Anzac Day, we commit to remembering with the words, lest we forget. Our society takes remembering pretty seriously. In fact, it takes it public holiday seriously. Um, but do we as a community here take Jude that seriously? You know, have you ever given over a day to remembering the apostles' call to be aware and not panic in the face of false teachers? Because we see Jude takes false teachers seriously. In verse 18, Jude says that Jesus' apostles foretold that in the last times there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. And he then goes on in verse 19 to define those scoffers. Um, scoffers, according to Jude, have three characteristics. Firstly, scoffers are people who divide you. They purposefully undermine the unity of the church, the very body of Christ, by playing people off one against the other. Scoffers also, from verse 19, follow mere natural instincts. Now, these people are not directed by God's word, but instead rely on their nature, the sinful nature that rejects God at every turn. Lastly, scoffers do not have the Spirit. Simply, they've not accepted the grace of God in Jesus and they don't testify to Jesus' lordship over all creation. If you think back to last week, we also learned from verse 16 of Jude that these scoffers are in some translations mockers. They tend to be grumblers, fault finders. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and they flatter others for their own advantage. We know that these scoffers are nothing new. Um, Jesus' apostles and the early in church encountered them regularly, didn't they? Uh, Mark chapter 3 verse 6 reminds us that uh, the opposition to Jesus started from the first moments of his ministry. And as we read through Mark's account of Jesus' life, we see how this opposition, well, it culminated in the crucifixion. Uh, meanwhile, in John 15, 18, which we only looked at recently, we see how Jesus links opposition to him to opposition to the disciples, saying, if the world hates you, keep in mind 
that it hated me first. Jesus then encourages the disciples in John 16 to remember how he's warned them about opposition so that they are ready for it. Now, this pattern then continues into the early church. Uh, in Acts chapter 7, verses 51 to 53, we see how Stephen rebukes the Jewish court, the Sanhedrin. While in Acts 13 to 19, Paul's opposed just about every time he proclaims the gospel. And we heard a little bit of that uh, in our second Bible reading. Jesus, the disciples, and the early church all faced scoffers, and they all had to contend for the gospel. But what about today? Uh, who fits the characteristic of the scoffer that Jude writes against? Who divides? Who follows natural instincts? Who lacks the spirit? Not testifying to Jesus' rule, and who from Jude verse 4, perverts the grace of our God into a license for immorality. I'm sad to say we need look no further than individuals who profess to be Christian or churches who say that they gather in the name of Christ but then advocate for causes that are in opposition to the gospel. You could easily point to the policies of a range of denominations on issues from same-sex marriage and abortion to worship practices and teaching on sacraments as examples of modern-day scoffers. However, we shouldn't just look out there. We also need to look a bit closer to home. Uh, the Anglican Communion in the English-speaking world is in pretty bad shape too. And there are no shortage of parishioners, ministers, bishops, blatantly and vigorously defying the word of God and encouraging others to do likewise on a day-to-day -day basis. In fact, I have to say, when I'm overseas, I'm actually now careful to clarify what I mean if I mention that I'm at an Anglican church to friends or family, um, lest someone mistake my beliefs. Now, the Anglican communion is in a pretty difficult situation too. We need to be on guard against those who profess faith but advocate for things that God prohibits. Uh, remembering, well, remembering is actually saying watch out for those advocating such things because they will come among us. In fact, maybe they're among us now. That's a pretty uncomfortable thought, isn't it? So-called Fortress Sydney being breached. Um, it seems like reason to panic. But again, we need to be reminded not to panic and instead turn to God's word, which instructs us how to rightly respond by contending for the gospel. So to do that, let's move on to verses 20 to 23. Verses 20 to 23 offer a clear way to respond that doesn't involve panicking. But I will say this, it's a response that we might not expect. Let's look at verses 20 to 21. But you, dear friends, by building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Were verses 20 to 21 what you expected? Did you think that contending for the gospel actually started with your relationship with God? And this was certainly a challenge to me. It's so easy to start by looking at others rather than ourselves, isn't it? But you'd actually insist that we begin by loving God by loving relationship with him. 
Now, let's have a think about why Jude says this. Well, in verses 20 to 21, Jude juxtaposes, he contrasts three characteristics of genuine believers with the three characteristics of scoffers that we read about in verse 19. Uh, where scoffers, they divide. Believers build themselves up by serving God's people, speaking with grace, loving each other, and pointing to the cross with their entire lives. And where scoffers, on the one hand, they follow natural instincts, believers, well, they pray in the Holy Spirit. Acts 4 shows us that this means asking of God that which aligns of the Spirit's role to testify to Jesus' lordship. We show that we're orientated to God's concerns rather than natural instinct by regularly and dependently pleading with God to bring people to follow Jesus in ever-increasing numbers. Lastly, scoffers, they lack the Spirit have not accepted the grace of God in Jesus, and they don't testify to Jesus' lordship over all creation. Whereas believers, on the other hand, they're told to keep themselves in God's love as they wait for Jesus' mercy that brings eternal life. Jude shows us that genuine believers love God with their whole lives. They've rightly responded to Jesus' saving work on the cross, which raises the question for us here today, have you? Have you responded to Jesus' saving work on the cross? Are you confident in the absolute efficacy of Jesus' blood for, you, for payment for your rebellion, for my rebellion against God? Now, this is a critical question that we each need to answer, and not only because your own salvation hinges on it, but also because it's actually a prerequisite to contending for the faith by effectively loving others who have been deceived by scoffers. Okay. Well, with that in mind, how then do we actually go about contending among others? What does it look like? And who might be a model of what it means to contend for the gospel? In verses 22 to 23, Jude says our model believer must be merciful to those who doubt, save others by snatching them from the fire, to others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. And perhaps you can think of people who have discipled you that match Jude's template for the believer who loves others in the face of opposition. Perhaps you're even the one being snatched from the fire. As people who have been shown mercy in Christ and now love God, our response to those who doubt, who are at risk of being tricked by scoffers, is to show mercy. Did you notice how Paul repeats the term in each verse? This mercy is not a passive mercy, far from it. It's an active mercy. It's a mercy that involves snatching from the fire, from verse 23. It's a mercy that puts us at risk, significant risk. And given this risk, we show mercy, taking the utmost care not to have anything to do with the corruption itself. And to remind us of this, Jude contrasts clothing stained by corrupted flesh with the believer's most holy faith from verse 20. Here he references the Levitical separation of the unclean or the corrupted from the holy, the two could never meet, to make us hyper-conscious of the importance of holiness. We show mercy, but we show mercy with vigilance. And with the discernment of, think back to verse 20 to 21, a prayerful, growing believer 
who trusts in God's saving work in Christ. Now, I'll be the first to admit, um, our world, it doesn't see discernment as a particularly important characteristic, does it? Uh, in fact, I can't imagine any of us putting discernment as a professional characteristic on a CV. Uh, however, discernment is actually a skill that is consistently valued through Scripture. If you turn quickly to Proverbs um, and scan through from chapters 14 to 19, uh, you'll see the term used nine times. Uh, in particular, look with me at Proverbs 14. Take a minute to open it up in your Bibles. Uh, so I'm thinking Proverbs 14, uh, verses 5 to 9 in particular. It's also on the screen. So here in Proverbs 14 we read, An honest witness does not deceive, but a false witness pours out lies. The mocker seeks wisdom and finds none, but knowledge comes easily to the discerning. Stay away from a fool, for you will not find knowledge on their lips. The wisdom of the prudent is to give thought to their ways, but the folly of fools is deception. Fools mock at making amends for sin, but goodwill is found among the upright. Did you notice in the passage how the category of mockers, which is a synonym for scoffers in the New Testament, was contrasted with that of the discerning? Mockers and scoffers seek wisdom, but find none. While the discerning, the prudent, the upright, are at ease in their application of knowledge to the problems that confront them. And moreover, Proverbs tells us that the categories of mocker or scoffer and the discerning are actually more about attitude and orientation than intelligence. And the attitude of a mocker is to Proverbs 15 verse 12, where they resent correction and they avoid the wise, which actually necessitates avoidance of God's life-giving word. Alternatively, those who carefully discern, like the Berean Jews that we read about in Acts 17, who carefully assessed Paul's claims against Scripture, while the discerning, they orientate themselves to God's word, a word that offers wisdom and correction. This means that if we're people who are to be driven by the instruction in Jude to contend for the gospel, by showing mercy mixed with fear and saving by snatching from the fire, then we must value discernment. So the question really is then, what does discernment actually look like in real life? How do you and I discern as we show mercy? I've got a few suggestions for you. Um, firstly, mercy and discernment start with prayer. Ask God that he would give you a heart for those who are confused about Jesus and wisdom from his word to love them without becoming complicit in their error. A second, invite those in need of mercy, people who are, who are doubting, people who are struggling to trust in Jesus or who are being tricked by false teachers, invite them along to Christ Church or another Bible-believing church. Proverbs 15 says that it's beneficial to be among the upright, followers of Jesus, and to separate from fools or scoffers. Now, thirdly, and I'd encourage everybody to be doing this, uh, read the Bible on a one-to-one -one basis with a brother or sister to keep sharpening your knowledge of God's word and chat through how best to show mercy in whatever situation may arise. 
one-to-one Bible reading, spending time in God's Word, is great for becoming a discerning Christian. Please keep working hard at these things with me. Uh, Let's partner together in showing mercy to those who doubt while staying vigilant for scoffers. We need to watch each other's backs as a church and help each other to show discernment together. And this brings us to verses 24 to 25. We've seen that we need to be aware by remembering that scoffers will come and respond with discerning mercy. However, more important than that, we need to know that we have a great and powerful God who's entirely in control, no matter the scoffers. Now, this is ultimately our reason not to panic. We contend for the gospel, for the faith, as people whom God has already established in the faith and whom God strengthens to do the work of showing mercy that he gives us. Look with me at verses 24 to 25. They read, To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the only God our Saviour, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. Amen indeed. Aren't those encouraging verses? Isn't it exciting that we have such an awesome God? As we do our best to discerningly show mercy, loving God and loving others, but inevitably falling short, God keeps us from stumbling. We have a God who doesn't only point out hazards or warn us not to stumble, but he grabs us under the arms and holds us up as we stumble. It's almost like when a baby's just learning to walk. When a baby's learning to walk, it's completely reliant on its parents to keep it upright. Uh, Without its parents, well, that baby, it's fractionally more mobile than a sack of potatoes. Um, But this is us. We're that baby. We're the ones who are fractionally more mobile than a sack of potatoes. This is us as we share the gospel with those tricked by scoffers and, dare I say it, with the scoffers themselves. They need the gospel too. We share the gospel as people reliant on the powerful God who shaped all history around his redeeming work and continues to conform the world to his will. But you know what? There's more. God doesn't only keep us from stumbling. Verse 24 says that God presents us before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. Here actually Jude reinforces the introduction of his letter where he celebrates how we believers, the dear friends of verses 3, 17, and 20, are called loved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. This point's a big deal. It's a point that's worth reflecting on. And it's the core of the gospel. God saves people through his son and he brings them from death to life. So as you contend for the faith, please never forget the supernatural. And I use that word very deliberately given verse 19. The supernatural work that God has already done in you. God has raised you from death to life, fully cleansing you of your sin through Jesus' work on the cross. In fact, turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 37. Um, Ezekiel chapter 37 beautifully illustrates this process of resurrection and renewal for us. I'm going to start reading from verse 3. Verse 3 reads, Son of man, 
can these bones live? Ezekiel then replies, Sovereign Lord, you alone know. And then God instructs Ezekiel to prophesy. Dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Sovereign Lord says to these bones. I'll make breath enter you, and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you, and make flesh come upon you, and cover you with skin. I'll put breath in you, and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. This is an intimate, supernatural work, if ever there was one. Here we're given an image of God's complete authority over humanity's most persistent enemy, death. And did you notice how once God has brought the bones to life, those risen to life know that he's Lord. They have relationship with him. So what about us then? As people risen to life, how do you describe our God? Is he as powerful as the God of Ezekiel 37? Do you know him as Lord? Because if this is your God, then please don't panic as you contend for the gospel. Don't panic. Just look with me at Jude verse 25. Our God is unique. He saves. He's glorious. He's majestic. He's powerful. He's authoritative. He predated the universe. He rules now. And he is on the throne forevermore. And you know what? That's the God that holds you and me up. It's this God who strengthens us as we contend for the faith, showing mercy to those who doubt. And it's this God who promises that we will get to spend eternity before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for saving us and giving us the privilege of being part of your mission to the world. We don't deserve mercy. We ask that as your creation, you would use us to your glory and sustain us as we share the gospel, despite our inadequacy and failings. We ask this in your son's name. Amen.